It's not a fancy salon. It's nothing but a Quonset hut. But if you've got a passion for fashion and you've got a craving for saving, take the wheel of your automobile and swing on down to Ideal. So what is hot? What's fashionable? What's trendy? And what's the trendy, fashionable thing that's hot today but may fade out tomorrow? Or what's the classic? What's tomorrow's MySpace or next month's Facebook before it's Facebook? Are the slip dress, the rucksack, the crop top, the chunky sandals here to stay? By the way, thank you to my wife for that research. Or will they be the victim of just a one-year trend? Do I invest time today in listening to all of Mike Posner or 21 Pilots? Or should I download Pokemon Go and invest? Or is it going away? Or in business, does it make sense to move on to today's trend? Or do we wait and see if it actually becomes a thing? Have you gotten your Yik Yak strategy going yet? Or how about Kick? It's got 275 million users. That's about 90% of Twitter has. Shouldn't we be moving on that? Have you implemented DataZoo yet or figured out how blockchain is going to affect your marketing strategy? It's hard to know what to pay attention to, and it's actually pretty interesting how much of our time we spend making this kind of decision. It's certainly one of the biggest benefits and the biggest dangers of digital technology, the speed at which things can be copied, which means that the new, new thing that you're seeing today is probably just a virtual copy of yesterday's old thing that you used to use. Which one of those is going to last? And that's the theme of our show today, fashion, trend, or long-term investment strategy. How do you spot each one and which one makes you look awesome? You ready to walk down the catwalk of content marketing? Well, let's get our best blue steel face on and let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 143 of PR's This Old Marketing, recorded Sunday, August 7th, 2016. And with me, as always, is my friend, my co-host, my colleague, and the man who's just too sexy for anything but orange, the most fashionable, trend-setting man of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my I, friend? Nobody's ever called me trend-setting. Let's just, <laughs> let's just get that out of the way right Look, now. Look, you know, it, it, you've, you've, the, the shoes, it's all about the you shoes know, I do, you. You know, I do appreciate <laughs> my orange shoes mo- more than yeah. most things, actually. Yeah. I, I love them. But I do have to say... When I was wearing orange, uh, a lot of orange in two thousand, starting in two thousand seven, orange wasn't a thing. And now I went into it's a thing. Went into, no, it's a yeah, thing. Yeah, I went into Dick's Sporting Goods last week, and I was looking at the golf stuff, and half the stuff was orange. I'm like, when did this happen? Like, what? What, what did we start? So. It happened. If you look at the Google Trends and you look at orange, it just spikes up right around 2011. I'm telling well, you, there's a thing. It's called the Polizzi effect. When the Polizzi effect is over. <laughs> I will still be wearing orange. <laughs> right. So oh, there because it's classic. Yeah. You've made it classic. <laughs> I don't move on to another thing. There's not. I'm not going to make anything else trendy. I'm going to still be in all this orange stuff and unable to wear anything that's not orange. So how was the how was the weekend? I know we're recording this on early Sunday for various reasons. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's 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 been good. I I am finally off the road. It's one of those things where I I've been on the road for oh gosh, you know, it's like it seems like three or three and a half weeks out of every month for the last two and a half months, and so I am finally off the road for three weeks as I dig down and dig deep to prepare for content marketing world. So I'm I'm super happy to be home, and but um, but yeah, no, it's 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 kind of weird actually to you know having time to go to the movies and actually sit down and have a nice meal with my wife and all of that. So it's 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 been rather lovely the last couple of days. 
Well, you, uh, you and I both saw movies, so you saw Star Trek, correct? I did, because I'm a huge fan, and I finally... That tells you how busy I've been, quite frankly, is that I hadn't... I'm such a huge fan, um, and didn't get a chance to go see it until literally last night, and it was... It was... It was good. It was... I... You know, it's funny that... I, and this is not giving anything away, but the it opens up with... Kirk being rather bored on his three, you know, year three of their five year mission, which I thought was a wonderful opening and talking about how things had become episodic. And then basically what proceeds to happen is a very episodic, you know, it's, it's a very episodic version of, 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 of a movie. And so it's, you know, it's, uh, it was good. I, I enjoyed the ride, but I, I missed some of the deeper stuff. So what would, out of 10, what would you grade it? I would give it probably a five or a oh six. Oh my gosh, that's lower yeah. than I thought. I was I was thinking yeah, it's seven. it's it's just it it got a little too enamored with its own special effects and stuff, and I just I I I, I missed the more human moments. Well, we saw we took a, a large group. This will tell you how <laughs> how Suicide Squad is going to do. We took a large group to opening night Thursday night, uh, first showing, and got a whole group. What did we have? Twelve people in there and our 12 was more than everyone else in the audience oh no so let's see how that movie is going to do yeah i can't say (laughs) anything about it because i don't have anything nice to say yeah i I was really disappointed and i love superhero movies i love guardians of the galaxy i love deadpool I, i mean i was i was hoping that it would be a good one but well it is dc (laughs) <laughs> so versus Boy, they just Marvel. can't catch a break. Yeah, they, they, they really can Marvel is just kicking them all over the place. And, and yeah. hey, I'll tell you what. Uh, storytelling means a lot. Writing yes, counts does. for a lot. Yeah, uh, you does. can't have the executives come in at last minute and just butcher it because that's what they think is best. And that's yeah. what unfortunately happened. So yeah. yeah, the only thing I want to say before we get started is we're recording on Sunday because tomorrow... Monday is our annual Orange Effect uh, golf outing, golf for autism. Such a wonderful thing. This is our 10th year. It's hard to believe we've been doing this for 10 years. We've been able to um, contribute well over $100,000 for families in need of speech therapy. Uh, It doesn't have to be kids on the autism spectrum. It happens to be in a lot of cases, and we're, we're helping fund families specifically, and it's a great cause. We'll be able to raise probably over $30,000 with this event this year, but we need a lot more help. So if anybody is, you know, has autism in their family somewhere or knows somebody with it, and there's a lot of people that can't afford speech therapy. Uh, and, and we try to fill those gaps. Uh, we don't do what autism speaks does what they do a great job of awareness and research. We really try to fund families that need funding, uh, for technology and therapy. So the orange if you get a chance, uh, and wish us all well, Tomorrow, as we go golf, the weather is supposed to be fantastic. Four. I know. Yeah. Petco is our primary sponsor this year, so oh, I have to throw nice. out a lot of love to our friends at Petco. Aon is another great sponsor of ours, so we've got a lot of real good uh, corporate sponsors that are helping us out. So very excited very about that nice. tomorrow. That's just wonderful. I wish I could be there. I will. I, I wish I could be there, and I wish I played golf. Well, yeah, you could um, be there. You would come for the dinner and drinks. I just throw money. You, at yeah, the you whole would come thing. for the I dinner just... and drinks. You wouldn't. I don't think <laughs> yes. you would be golfing necessarily. I would come for the drinks. But... That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forget the dinner. He's just coming for the drinks. I'm just, just gonna have a, a red make sure wine. There's a bottle of tequila ready set for up. Me. A tequila and red wine station set up just for you. There it is. There All it right. is. All right. Well, shall Let's we to the news? Shall. Okay. Well, our first story comes to us courtesy of the New York Times and from LinkedIn um, directly. We're going to pair two stories together, folks. Here um, because they have they're you know basically news from both social media channels. Here, the first story is Instagram takes a page almost literally from Snapchat and takes aim at it too. And the New York Times reports uh, starts out by saying the popular disappearing message startup rebuffed a three billion dollar acquisition offer from Facebook in 2013. Snapchat's service has since continued to grow rapidly by capturing the hearts and thumbs of the young audiences that advertisers love.
Facebook has failed in several attempts at cloning Snapchat. Well, now Instagram, the photo sharing app owned by Facebook, is for the first time taking its own stab at Snapchat. They introduced dun 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 Instagram Stories, which lets people share photos and videos that have a lifespan of no more than 24 hours, um, and basically copies almost verbatim um, what Snapchat does. The interwebs, as they do, are filled with both outrage, victorious, thumbs up, whatever have you, depending on which you're a fan of. Um, where did you come down on this, on, on this whole copy cop thing? Well, I think it was only a matter of time because how many, how many occasions has Facebook gone to Snapchat trying to buy them? And yeah, Snapchat, exactly. when, what was it? The last one I think in the article says three billion dollar offer in 2013, and they're right. valued at 18 or 19 billion now. Yeah. And um, so they're saying, okay, well, we cannot buy Snapchat, and there is some concern. And if you read through, which I did, some of Facebook's <laughs> corporate report that they came. By the way, Facebook's financial results are off the charts. Amazing again. Oh, their yeah. growth is continuing. Yeah. But there was some concern that Snapchat was going to start eating at Instagram's uh, advertiser base. And so here we go, dead on. They're taking aim for Snapchat. So I think from that standpoint, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. They even called it stories. I mean, they're, they're really – it's funny because we were, were at a graduation party on Saturday. I was asking the kids about it. When I say kids age 13 to 17. And right. they were all saying, oh, yeah, they're trying to copy Snapchat. I mean, they, that's the first thing out of everybody's mouth. Right, so of course. Everybody knows it. And even if you look at the press release on this, uh, even though they don't say Snapchat by name, Instagram is saying, oh, yeah, we're copying Snapchat. It's all good. Uh, that's what we're yeah. doing. And that's fine. I think it's a good move for them. But I, if, if I'm a brand marketer, I think this is not, no news right now. I wouldn't do anything with it. I would just stick to what you're doing or actually do do less because as we know a lot of the marketers we work with are are basically on too many channels doing haphazard stuff um could this be an advertising option i thought that was interesting i don't know if you read the part or what you thought of the part where they if people post things using instagram stories around a certain hashtag let's say the olympics or something they can mesh these together and then an advertiser can come in and basically sponsor a portion of it with their own messaging, and they yeah, weave it throughout the story. I mean, I don't know what you thought about that. Well, that was the that was the to me from a from a marketing standpoint the most interesting part of this, which was you know looking at it more as you know. I mean, I thought Jay Bear um, on his Convince and Convert blog had probably the best take of this that I've seen, um, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Which is, look, this is. This is good for Snapchat and it's good for Instagram, yeah. right? And, and it validates and so, Snapchat. Yep. It, exactly, it validates Snapchat one and for Instagram. Look, you know, so here, here, I'm a perfect case study of this. I've tried Snapchat. I, I've said on this show that I'm not. I don't get it. I'm, I know I'm in the minority, and I know I'm kind of, you know, maybe maybe a luddite from that from that perspective. But Snapchat has not resonated with me. But as an Instagram user, I went and tried it. And I tried the Instagram stories, and I thought it was kind of cool. I, I liked it. So does that make me want to go sign up for Snapchat now? No, not really, but it but it does make me want to use Instagram stories. And so Jay's point, which I think is a good one, which is, look, you know, as social networks become more mature, they tend to attract the business people, the moms, the dads, the older generation, and thus, you know, quote, unquote, to the younger generation, sells out. And becomes not hip anymore, and so this can work. This can work for both, right? So as Snapchat continues to be a youth-driven, um, mostly uh, platform, and Instagram has now aged into the Facebook demographic, I think it can work for both. And we'll, you know, execution over the long haul, we'll see um, which one actually prevails. But I think, as Jay also says, this becomes a really interesting view because Instagram now becomes Facebook's video screen to the world. Um, so I think it's a really interesting move, um, and I think it's a smart one. I think they had to do it, just to your yeah. point, because they've tried so often to become a suitor to Snapchat. It's just like, all right, well, if you're not going to come to the wedding chapel, I'm, we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll just build you. <laughs> so I, I think it's good for So both. basically, from what you just said, here's my takeaway that Instagram stories is old man's Snapchat. 
Is that basically what you just said? <laughs> that should probably be the title of the show. Yes, Instagram Facebook, becomes old yeah, man Facebook Snapchat. Creates old man there you Snapchat go. through Instagram. Thank you. Stories. Thank you for calling me an old That's man. Good. No, it's in, nothing yes, against. You know, you're as young as a young fifty. You're the youngest fifty. I, you're 50. young fifty. I'm a young fifty. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'm a young fifty. That's good. But, the, but That's what good. you just said. You tried Snapchat. You no, didn't I, like I, it. Now you're in. You're already. <laughs> On Instagram, and and think about it, Snapchat has 150 million users. Instagram has 500. If they That's get right. even a portion to try Instagram story, they're right there with them. Exactly. That's exactly so, right. Oh, That's exactly. <laughs> That's a, all right. Well, speaking. Okay, oh, then speaking of on, old yes. old men, <laughs> young. I'm a young 50. I'm gonna take that with me today. <laughs> all right. This uh, this story comes to us courtesy directly from the horse's mouth, as it were, from LinkedIn. Um, this is the one we're pairing our first story with, and it's LinkedIn feed is com- coming to life with videos from influencers. I'm going to I'm going to dispute that coming to life, the life part of that, but okay. I'll get to that in Got a second. It. The blog post opens up by saying LinkedIn has become the destination to hear from many of the most influential global voices on news and topics affecting the professional world today. From issues like Brexit to the business impact of Pokemon Go, the opinions shared here have generated millions of conversations across LinkedIn with many of those taking place in the LinkedIn feed. Over the past few months, we've worked hard to make your feed a valuable resource of dynamic conversations, professional news, and stories. And today, your LinkedIn field will come to feed rather will come to life in a whole new way with the introduction of 30-second videos from LinkedIn influencers. Yay! Uh, and so for the first time, we've invited more than 500 influencers on LinkedIn to share their thoughts on trending professional topics and news ranging from diversity, workplace culture, to education and innovation, all through the richness of video. So, hey, you, Mr. LinkedIn influencer Polizzi, what do you think about all of this? Oh my gosh! So yes, I, as I forward, <laughs> so, can you can you tell how I feel about as this? I forward, from- <laughs> yes. So I I received a note on August second from uh, Daniel Roth, and and Daniel is executive ec- editor over at LinkedIn, and I've worked with Dan forever since. Um, yeah, I had the pleasure of becoming an influencer and we've talked about how that happened. So basically the influencers were the first ones to actually create and publish content on LinkedIn. That was basically the beta run of publishing content. And then it was probably two years after I started as an influencer, they then unleashed publishing to everyone. And now as you go in the LinkedIn feed, everybody's publishing, right? And and for the most part, it seems to be a successful move because it's generated way more interest in LinkedIn and they're advertising that, and they're growing, and it's and it's great. So now I get the the email from Dan at LinkedIn that talks about starting today. We're they're exclusively inviting these influencers, which there are about five hundred influencers, I believe, That's to, right. to share their insights on professional topics. Which I, what I thought was interesting or strange to me is when Facebook did this and they they introduced Facebook Live, they went out and got some influencers and they let certain influencers just just create video. Per per your target audience, just create video. That's not how this is. This is basically the editorial team from LinkedIn are they're coming up with things like what is your favorite place in your office and what is the first thing uh thing um AI will take over at work. What's the number one thing founders should avoid doing in a pitch meeting? And, you know, for that one, Guy Kawasaki answers in 30 seconds and you record it on your iOS device and publish it and it's linked up. And then you've got all these influencers answering this question. I I don't know. This is a personal take. It, this could work great for LinkedIn. I would have rather them just say, hey, you already publish on LinkedIn. Just create video with it. Here you go. That's, Just record the video. It. Yes. Embed the video into your article or just... Why don't you just tell me the name of the movie you'd like to see? <laughs> <laughs> so what... I, what is your... What is your very positive take on this? <laughs> yeah, and this is going to ruin any chance I had of ever becoming a, a LinkedIn yeah, influencer. Yeah, I think it's already done now because they know <laughs> yeah, which way exactly. you're going. Go yeah, ahead, exactly. Well, look, I think... I went and watched a bunch of these 
And they're from people I know, namely not you, but but I've met people I've met and know at conferences and stuff like this. And they're from people I don't know. And, you know, some of them, you know, very influential in this space. And I just I the, the, the first of all, the quality lost me because the quality is very spotty depending on where this person is, um, what they're doing, the way they hold their phone, the way. So it's it's. It, it ruined some of the experience for me and it just feels forced. It just feel it's one of those, all of them feel a bit like, you know, those videos that, you know, you take at a conference, right? Where somebody goes, well, here's the question we want you to answer. And yeah. then they go, great. And so they repeat the question in the thing because they don't want the interviewer's, you know, voice on the video. So you repeat the question and then you go off on a 30 second answer, which is of course entirely too short for anything meaningful and quite frankly, just barely scratches the surface of the thing. So it just ends up coming off like a commercial, quite frankly. And so I, I didn't, I, you know, some of them were better than others and some of them were okay. And, and, but it just overall felt really clunky to me. And so I totally agree with you. If, they, if it had just been like, just make a video. That not 30 seconds. It can be five minutes. It can be whatever it needs to be for whatever you're going to talk about and do it and and create something really wonderful rather than sort of forcing people down this sort of professional development sort of hole it just i don't know it feels very clunky to me right now it feels like the video version of remember the linkedin thing the q and a the, the where they were going to go after quora and become sort of the answers thing yeah it feels very much like that um but with video and so i you know i just found it i found it clunky well the you hit on the issue that I, I'm having a problem with because as I go in and I'm looking at this and I'm of course I'm I'm thinking oh maybe I should try this maybe this would yeah be of course you should try it yeah I mean, yeah but I don't like any of the topics right I don't have a certain passion for the number one thing founders should avoid doing in a pitch meeting I don't care about the favorite place in my office it's generally my chair I can't talk for thirty <laughs> seconds on that I mean. <laughs> Seriously, right? <laughs> right? Who cares? Nobody cares what Joe Polizzi thinks about his orange chair. Nobody. Not maybe the chair manufacturer. But other than that, that's right. nobody else cares. So I guess that's that's my take. And I'm assuming that this is a beta run and maybe it doesn't matter. Yes, of course. Maybe this it is, doesn't this even is, matter. You know this yeah. is right. It's not gonna none of this is gonna matter because it's gonna be something else anyway. So I guess Of course. And it's gonna be opened up to the it's gonna be opened up to the world to something. We're all gonna right. have access to this video, right. this LinkedIn record. We'll all be able to do it in the feed at some point. This is just the start of it. So I guess for marketers out there or business owners, you can start to think of that's going to be coming down the road. And if that's something you want to experiment with, I would focus on you know, basically like we talk about any kind of content marketing strategy or tilt, you know, what's your differentiation? What are you going to cover on a regular basis? How can you make it a series and not just a one-off type of thing? So that's right. And I guess, and, and one of the, so, and that, what, what it, what that hints at is, I think I'm just now thinking of this as, as you said that, which is, I think that might be one of the reasons I'm finding this so clunky. I think when you listen to him, you know, I've heard Guy Kawasaki speak, you know, and he's an amazing speaker. I've, you know, I've, I've heard some of these other people speak and they're wonderful speakers, but when they answer this question, you can tell they're trying to find some angle to try and answer the question. And so they're not nearly as passionate about the topic. So they're not nearly as digging deep. And so they've literally just said, yeah, let me give this a try. And so the 30 second video is quite frankly, them just going, yeah, here's my take on this. Right. So it's, it's quite literally an afterthought which is why it feels clunky to me. And now they're because the algorithm is placing it so high, it's like I can't go to LinkedIn right now without seeing one of those videos staring me back in the face at the top of my feed. So, you know, I, anyway, I just I I I didn't I didn't love it as much as I wanted. But it's interesting. It. I wonder if it would take off and if it could take off if you have some of those thought leaders in the business area that are that are just taking advantage of video and you're absolutely the algorithm is going to trend toward showing those videos That's so right. it's gonna yeah it's yeah. gonna be interesting and so you know it's a it's an instagram stories snapchat facebook live video into you know business leadership if you will 
uh, business thought yeah. leadership. So I don't, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. It's all coming at you. I, I guess the, I guess the whole, <laughs> I guess, I guess the thing to keep in mind for anybody listening is don't worry about it right now. Like I wouldn't do anything. Yeah. I wouldn't pre- really prepare anything. Exactly. There's these, no action. Let these things here. just flow by you like the, like, this, <laughs> like, a, like a nice current in the stream. <laughs> and you're just watching it. And then we'll see what happens. Water underground, let this feeling flow. Anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. So our next story comes to us courtesy of CMS Wire here. And the headline, which grabbed my attention, I don't know if it grabbed yours, content marketing isn't a strategy, um, which is definitely the clickbait uh, headline yes, for a, I thought, pretty good re- uh, interview with Karen McGrain, um, who is a content strategist. Former, um, uh, yeah. And, and she keynoted last year's Intelligent Content Conference, too. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Content. So the article, yeah, and the article opens up by saying, for more than fifteen years, Karen McGrain has helped create more usable digital products through the power of user experience design and content strategy. And the interview itself goes on for a fair bit about adaptable content, which is Karen's real passion and what she's written a book on, um, and the difference between adaptable and responsive and all that kind of stuff. And and she's, by the way, she manages Bond Art and Science, which is a user experience consultancy. Her book is Content Strategy for Mobile, published by A Book Apart. Um, and the, the the headline and the thing that we should talk about is about halfway through the interview, somebody, uh, the interviewer says this something about content marketing. And she actually says content marketing really is kind of overblown these days. Um, and basically content strategists have been called in to, I guess, clean up the mess or something like that. And, 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 and well, anyway, before I go to, I have a small take on this, but I, I, I would, what did you think about this? Well, actually a lot of, a lot of really good information in this article, really that, good information. Karen in and, and we agree with Karen on where it's, you know, the technology can only do so much. It can't help you necessarily create this, the, the ideas for the content. Uh, it it's not going to help you build a strategy. So she talks about the strategic approach first before you run. And that's what I always loved when she said, talked about an intelligent content conference was, hey, you're all out there worried about personalized content and you just don't have your act together just in general. Like you don't have a basic strategy that works and a CMS system that really works to, to get basic information out to the majority of your audience right now. So don't worry about right. personalized content. So I always love that. Like just yeah, focus exactly. on the 95% and get the 5% later. Um, and I think we actually wrote an article on that uh, later on, on based on Karen's speech. But what, what yeah. I so, – so let's go to the clickbaity. I don't know if this was taken out of context or why this was said, but it's – this and I'm not just going to talk about Karen. Uh, I'm going to talk about in the content strategy community. Let's say we've heard this from the content strategy community. So basically, for those of you that don't know, there seems to be uh, this inside baseball thing where there, there's a content marketing community, which tends to be marketing folks that are trying to attract customers through valuable, compelling content. And there's this content strategy, which basically is uh, they're looking at how content is used throughout the entire organization, not just marketing. And and how do we strategize and how do we govern that throughout? And it's often involved in IT and HR and lots of different groups. And it's, and we're, we're just focused on marketing for the most part. Content strategists are focused on, on everything. But the thing that Karen says is, and I'll just read it because then we can comment on it. The problem is that content marketing isn't a strategy. It's about volume and SEO and seeing what sticks. Who says who? <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. What? Right. See, and that's my problem. And I've had <laughs> that's the that's yeah. I've had, exactly. And I've, I've talked with and Christina Halverson, who's a good friend of mine too, over at Brain Traffic, <clears> who's <throat> also been a keynote at Content Marketing World. She, we had some problems with this years ago, and I told her, I said, "There's no doubt that there are a lot of people out there doing content marketing without a strategy and looking at it at volume and SEO, but." The people that are really trying to do this right are not doing it that way. They don't look, they don't define content marketing that way. They do actually have a strategy. So what I don't like about this kind of positioning is it just says, oh, oh this is what content marketers do. No, yes, some do. Some some are focused on clickbaity headlines and some focus on, hey, can we get just more content out there and can we try to game the system? But 
there I would I would say the sheer majority of the ones that are attending content marketing world are really trying to focus on what are the audience's needs, how do we and this is this is what you espouse to, how do we create the minimum amount of content for the maximum amount of results? Right. And Karen's going in there thinking, oh well, content marketers have come in there and broken this, and I have to go in there and fix it because they created all this all this stupid content. I don't think that's content marketing. I think that's just it's not some people it's, that do it's that. N- yeah, it's not. And 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 here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the the writer who put this blog post together forgot a comma, quite quite frankly. And and basically, I'm what I'm hoping is is that that this was a verbal interview where she said the problem. Pause is that content marketing isn't a strategy for most businesses, right? And Which so that would be true. If, yeah, if, yeah, that's perfect, right? And then that somehow got truncated down without the comma or semicolon and without the for most businesses tagged on at the end so that it becomes the opening of the sentence becomes the problem is that content marketing isn't a strategy so i'm so i don't know and and so without knowing it's very hard to make a a judgment one way or the other as it's written it's 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 one of those things where you know it follows the recipe right you know the recipe that we said whatever it was six or seven shows ago where we said look the recipe is basically say that content marketing sucks or doesn't exist or isn't a strategy and then misdefine it as being about volume or SEO or just throwing spaghetti against the wall because that's what content marketing is and then say basically that's that's not what we should be doing and then of course that's not what we should be doing and then you know so end your blog post there so <clears throat> the what makes me think that it may be this that side of it is the way she opens up by saying I believe that content marketing as a strategy is a bit overblown where she says that the idea of the foundation of marketing could sit on creating and then throwing away ever more content is simply not viable over the long term. I I don't know who's rightfully saying that either, yeah. right? Who's 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 really making that contention? And it's not us. We're certainly not saying that. So anyway, the not that notwithstanding, the rest of this interview about adaptable content and UX and UI and stuff like that is 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 actually it's quite all good. good. Actually, and, it's and, just the yeah. three paragraphs that talk about <laughs> content strategy, content marketing, and right. and I guess the the way that I would and we, you and I have been fighting this battle, and I'm you know this this uh, the group the content strategy group a little bit better than I do, and I've never really understood why there's this. Uh, pit against each other content strategy versus content marketing. Uh, but the one, here's what I would say, and I've heard this straight from the mouths of many content strategists that are, that are sitting in content. They say, basically, they don't espouse to some of the things that maybe we believe in or we talk about, but they're very thankful for the movement behind content marketing because <clears throat> it's giving them the opportunity to get jobs that they would have never gotten before. That's right. So I. That's right. It's, they're they're, they're well, getting it's, content marketing. Jo- content strategists are getting work in content from content marketers. That's well, and so here's the thing. I, you know, because I, I think we can all agree, right? I mean, I wrote a post on this two years ago and have written a couple of subsequent posts about this. I, the, the name of the post, which got a little traction at, at its time, where I said content marketing and content strategy are separate but intimately connected, right. right? They are they are intricate with each other. And there's a wonderful Venn diagram that you can certainly draw and all that kind of stuff. But it's, I absolutely, if I'm part of a content marketing initiative, if I'm a marketer and I'm trying to make content a more effective way that I go to market, I'm going to employ content strategists everywhere I can because I find them invaluable. Thinking about how content flows like fluid through the business, like, you know, through the veins of the business is an incredibly valuable thing to have and understanding how it should be structured and adaptable in this case and 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 affect the UI and UX of what I'm doing and all the wonderful things that content strategy tenants espouse is, is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. But there's the it's when it's when you pit it I, I i to this day can't figure out why there's sort of a uh there's sort of a a tension there between the two other than i i know for a fact that many of those content strategy folks 
um, don't come from marketing. They come from other parts of the business. Sometimes they come from IT. Yeah. Sometimes they come from technical documentation. Sometimes they come from a pure uh, librarian perspective. Sometimes they come from, you know, um, very classically trained uh, document management. You know, there's lots of different practices that sort of emerged into this idea of content strategy at the enterprise level. And it's not, you know, much of it isn't marketing, but quite frankly, as you point out, many of them are finding their home now in marketing because marketing is becoming responsible for the content in the business. And so it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I believe, and this is, this was key to my keynote at ICC this year, which is we're much, I mean, <laughs> I just, it just dawned on me how ironic this is going to sound and stupid this is going to sound, but that we're better together. And I, yeah, I know what I just said, but okay. So when we are stronger together than we are separated. And, and so there you have it. <laughs> they I, should have uh, a bumper think, sticker for that. Actually, uh, I think that would be really gosh. helpful. The stronger uh, together thing. Make content great again. How about that? We'll just, Oh my God. <laughs> we'll just... That's the, now that's the new headline for there this, we go. For this All right. So shall we move on? Uh, yeah, shall we move on not? from this story? That's it. Yeah. Um, okay. This is our last story uh, of the show, and it's uh, uh, it's one we can cover quickly um, because it's one that we've covered a lot, and it comes to us courtesy of The Guardian. Um, it is Facebook's dominance in journalism could be bad news for us all. The article opens up and says, <clears throat> the benefits of allowing social platforms to host your journalism outweigh the disadvantages, Right. Most publishers, however, reluctantly will say yes and adopt the we are where we are argument. Others put a more positive spin on things, maintaining that publishers should go where their audience is, share what advertising revenue is available, and trust that they can turn passing interest into loyal and paying readership. Um, and the article goes on to talk about the bad news that this could be for publishers and audiences alike. Um, well, you come from this world. What did you think of this article? We've we've talked about this at length, so I don't. We don't have yeah. to cover it very long. I think right. I am, and I'm going to talk about this in my rant as well. So okay. I don't All have right. to go yeah. too far into it. But I think that that publishers and media companies have a real problem because they're putting their financial lives and their customers in the hands of somebody else. And in this article, it's namely Facebook, and it's a problem. And I know a lot of publishers. I've talked to a lot of CEOs out there that are basically like, ah, there's nothing we can do. That's just the nature of the beast. No, it's not. You don't have to do anything on Facebook if you don't want to. There are lots of different ways we can talk to our customers today. And I think everyone's like, oh, no, no, we have to create lots of content. Like how many articles does Washington Post create every day through instant yeah, right. articles? A thousand? I don't know what they do. It's something ungodly. And they feel that they have to. Well, maybe the – what if just the news uh, – the news publishers need. To. That's a very small portion of overall media companies of the news media. Very, very yeah. small. 5% maybe. Maybe less than that. I mean, most of the media companies out there actually cover a particular niche and uh, more like a you know, B2B trade publication. So I, I would just say I'm really sick and tired of this defeatist attitude coming from publishers that they can't do anything about it when they're just not, I just don't think we're thinking outside the box to other business models. And that's what I'm going to talk about exactly. in my rant. So I don't know what your yeah. take is, but that's my take. I, it's exactly that. I mean, I think for me, what I, what I took away from this is that, you know, in so many ways as marketers, we look to what publishers are doing as an operational model and my, you know, and I've, and I've actually seen this where, you know, some of the, some of the people that we work with in, you know, from an advisory standpoint, from an educational and workshop standpoint, you know, they, they either are one looking to publishers as an operational model, hiring those people in to help run their owned media properties, or in some cases acquiring them as we've talked about on this show and becoming publishers. And what I, what I get afraid of, and I've actually heard this from some marketers where they say, hey, look, we're seeing what these publishers are doing by taking advantage of the reach that Facebook can give them. Um, and we think that's a pretty good idea. So we're going to start putting some effort into that as well. And when I go, uh, you really want to think twice about how much effort you put into that, then they, 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 you know, they sort of tilt their head at me like my dog does when I whistle um, because they don't, they're like, well, but wait a minute, publishers are doing this and we're supposed to act and operate like publishing companies. It's like, well, no, just be careful because publishing companies don't necessarily have all this stuff figured out either. Yeah. And, 
especially when you're not trying to go for reach, but rather a niche audience and have them do things. You know, as I like to say in my workshop, that's the one advantage that marketers do have over publishers. Because when you're in a when you're in a when you're in a marketing position and you're trying to operate like a publisher and get subscribers to your platform, the advantage that you have over the quote unquote competition of the publisher, the media company that is vying for the attention of that audience, is that you don't care about going viral necessarily. You don't need traffic. What you need is action. You need a subscriber. You need someone who's willing to buy. You need someone who's willing to stay along or do something or, quite frankly, just become a little more enamored with your brand or your approach. That's our goal. Our goal as marketers is to do that. So things that sort of just artificially help us get more traffic aren't necessarily the right approach to, to actually success. And so really taking a good hard look at why we're going to use a social platform just because we can doesn't necessarily yep. mean we should. And just because others are doesn't mean we should. And so that's that's where my concern comes in. And so I I'm wholeheartedly would, you know, agree with your, you know, sort of counsel to those publishers who are, you know, just saying, listen, don't be defeatist about this. There are ways to reach audiences that don't include selling your soul out to Well the thing is too you can create content on your own platform, and if it's really good and you have a really loyal and rabid audience base, they'll share it on Facebook. That's right, exactly. You don't, Copy you don't blogger, have to yeah, be on quintessential example. You don't, yeah, you don't right. have to have a Facebook page. You don't have to be on Facebook. You don't have to do instant stories for that to be shared on Facebook. Exactly, and guess what ranks higher. That's, Guess what? That's you know, right. If you want to play the algorithm game, that's what's going to rank higher are your audience sharing your stories on Facebook, not you sharing them on Facebook. That's right. That's yeah. right, Robert. That's right. <laughs> speaking of <laughs> speaking of sharing stories, we need to share a beautiful story about our favorite sponsor we in do. the entire Absolutely. universe. Absolutely. As we normally do in August, we reserve the month of August to talk about all things content marketing world. And what's funny, Robert, is exactly 30 days from today is the start of content marketing. I'm, September I'm, 7th. I'm, I'm not feeling pressure. Oh, no the pressure's pressure. on. September 6th through 9th. Uh, the 6th are workshop days. 7th and 8th are the main general sessions. And the 9th are industry labs. And if you're not familiar with content <clears> marketing <throat> world, it is the largest in-person event on the planet around the approach of content marketing. Uh, last year, 3,500 marketers from over 50 countries attended the event. What's funny, um, this week, Robert, I, I saw something like 12 different countries sign up for uh, for Content Marketing World in Cleveland, amazing. Ohio. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it, is, it really is amazing. So uh, Cleveland will again be the setting for the event for our sixth annual Content Marketing World. The attendee list is first rate, best attendee list we've ever had. Uh, the companies that are that are going to come to Cleveland is, is phenomenal to me. Uh, we'll have around 40 of the Fortune 100 represented as attendees this year. Uh, but we do have sessions for small, medium, and larger size organizations. We have 12 concurrent tracks every day from social media to SEO to content marketing strategy to content strategy to intelligent content to you name it. Uh, we've got it this year. Brand speakers include Lego, Bank of America, Visa, GE, Google, Microsoft, Intel. I don't know if you've heard of any of those brands, Robert, but I've those are rumors of them. Yeah. Those are some of the speakers. So some really small companies that are speaking this year. We also <laughs> we also like to have a little fun with our closing keynote, Mister Mark Hamill. Uh, and Luke Hall of Fame band Cheap Trick. And by the way, uh, the wonderful marketing team at Content Marketing Institute, they have a deal where if you sign up to Content Marketing World before August 12th, so you have a few days yet, you will get into a drawing to meet Mr. Mark Hamill. And I've heard, I saw that, I saw that crossover and I thought, all you have to awesome. do is register. Uh, you get the opportunity to meet Mark Hamill, or if you don't win the grand prize of meeting Mark Hamill, you get to sit in the front row. So we pick multiple people. And by the way, I think we're also giving away things like an hour consulting with me, an hour <laughs> consulting with you. I don't know if those are worth anything, but we're giving those away too. We'll have a good glass of wine. It's regardless. hard to match. Yeah. It's, it's like, okay, you get to meet Mark Hamill or sit with Joe and Robert for an <laughs> or hour. Sit with Robert Rose. <laughs> Anyways. So Content Marketing World is September oh 6th through 9th. We want all PNR listeners to be there. Uh, you save a little bit extra by using discount code PNR200. You will save $200 off the final price. Be sure to do that today. Uh, we're something like 85% to capacity for the hotels uh, downtown, so we're almost sold out. 
uh, all the hotels near the Cleveland Convention Center. I don't want you staying in Toledo, so sign up today. Make sure you stay in Cleveland, Ohio. And, and of course, Mr. Robert Rose and myself would both be speaking at the event as well, <laughs> just in case all those other names but didn't get you. don't let that dissuade you. We're, I like how you mentioned that after the Toledo part. They're like, yeah, maybe I want to stay in Toledo after all. <laughs> <Let's say, laughs> Here those two chuckleheads are going to be You talking. know, Jamie Farr likes Toledo. I mean, you know, I, I know. Some good, Toledo's a great, great city. Although I went to Bowling Green State University, which was uh, just <laughs> south of Toledo, and we always said the sun never shines in Toledo, Ohio, which I found out later is not true because I drove through there a couple months ago, and it was <laughs> and indeed it did, shining. It did actually shine. So I do love Toledo. So <laughs> All right. there you go. There you have it. All right. Well, now it is time for your favorite part of the show, folks. It is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave that makes us, oh, feel like we're wearing the wrong fashion from the wrong year or something that makes us feel quite trendy um, and popular. Um, And so let's see. I guess I have this old marketing this week. And so I will go first. Um, And I have a small rant. Um, and this, I, I think this is going to, this is going to ring true for you. Um, especially given the way we opened the show today, um, which I didn't plan, but it, it turned out that way. So this article that we'll link to, uh, in the show notes comes from Bloomberg, but it's all over the web. At least it's all over my social platforms. So there's a thing. Have you seen this, uh, the, the thing going around about, um, you know, uh, Marissa Mayer and the interview she gave and how she talked about working 130 hours I saw hours a headline a of 130-hour <clears throat> work week, and that's totally yeah. wrong. That's the article that I saw. That's right. And so, so good, because that's what my rant is on. So it's, it's a good interview, by the way. I read, went and read the interview, and she talks about a lot of things, not just working 130 hours a week, but she talks about motherhood and priorities and her time at Google and all of that. And it's quite a lovely interview and, and worth the read, so definitely link to it in the show notes. But the, scene, the thing that caught my eye and seems to be catching everybody on this particular story, and this is why it sort of spurred me to actually talk about it, is when she talks about this ability to work 130 hours in a week. And in some of the posts that I'm seeing, all of a sudden that becomes like this big badge of honor, the work, I work 130 hours a week thing. And it becomes sort of this, you know, I'm seeing posts like, in order to succeed, you got to work 130 hours a week or successful startups work 130 hours a week. And by the way, no, you, you can't do that. I mean, that means that you get five hours of sleep a night on average over seven days a week. And if that means if that's, if, if that's all you do is work and sleep, you get five hours of sleep. And that does, so that doesn't account eating or doing anything other than working and sleeping. And so maybe, yes, in a sprint for one week as you approach the launch of something, or if, but not continuously, that's just not humanly possible. So here's the two things, and it just... This happened to also hit my inbox and my platform when I just had a chat last week with a friend of mine who wore her, she wears her sleeplessness on her sleeve. Um, you know, she talks about, uh, you know, I work hard and, I'll, you know, sleep is for when you die and, and says stuff like that. And I'm building things. That seems to be the big thing these days. I'm building things. I'm bu- I have the hustle. I have the hustle. <laughs> I, the, the, I hear about the hustle all the time, which just annoys the heck out of me. And She's now told me the last week that she's got really, she's actually had to go to the doctor. She's got extremely high blood pressure. She's on meds now. Um, By the way, she's in her mid-30s. And so she's on blood pressure medication and she's dealing with high stress and she's in danger of literally dying. And by the way, her business is not doing that great either. It's, it's, It's doing okay, but it's not like killing it and she's killing herself. Um... So this fascination with the hustle and how hard we can work and how we can fit the hours into the day and our life and all the social posts that, you know, you got to work hard if you're going to make it and bringing back the old, you know, I don't know if people remember, but there used to be a thing from Apple where people would wear T-shirts as they were getting ready for the, le- the, the, the release that said, working 90 hours a week and loving it, you know, and that there's sort of the new version of that, that's sort of the hipster thing, which is I work, you know, 100 hours a week and I love it and I would suggest that that's mostly BS, and I would point to people like Joe Polizzi, and I would point to, you know, humbly I would point to me, and I would point to other people who are very successful that I know in their business, and they don't work 130 hours a week. We work hard. We work smart. 
I know Joe does. I know everybody at CMI does. And as it approaches content marketing world, we work probably more than 40, 50, 60 hours in a week. We work very hard. There are a couple of sleepless nights, but we also encourage sleep. We encourage relaxation. We encourage fun. We encourage focus. We encourage creativity. So yeah, take a night off, go see a movie, read a book, find some balance. You'll be a much more interesting person. And I'll just leave you with this because this is an important thing that I learned from a mentor a long time ago when I've, you know, cause I've been part of four startups. Um, it's only success if you're there to enjoy it. So That's great. take that. That's a great line. Yeah. The one thing, of course, I agree with you 100%. The one thing that I would add <laughs> on to that was, is, and I don't know how it is for you, but I mean, you and I both write a lot. Um, we write a lot of blog posts, write books. Yeah. Most of my content ideas are while I'm not working, while my mind is doing right. something else and it just pops in there. And so I long for times that I'm not working because it's for some reason that the brain works in that creative way. And I'm like, whoa. And that's why I always have a, a notebook with me. I'm not working. Yeah. But I have it there just in case I get an idea. And, yep. uh, and I love it. Yeah. I, mine is digital, but it's the same thing, right? I capture ideas all the time when I'm just sitting on the beach, looking out at the horizon or on a plane and I'll put on some meditation music and just sit there and just sit, just be, don't, you don't have to do anything, just be. And, and it's, you know, and just, just, just be there. And, and it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. It, it really does get your best creative juices. Sometimes flow. you have to veg out. You have to just be like broccoli and lay there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. It is my it is my turn. Um, yes. And I have a rant, and I actually just wanted to get this article into the show notes too, because uh, two weeks, I think it was two weeks ago, you and I talked about this on air, and and you said, "Oh, you got to write something on that," and I did. And basically, ah. um, it's the, the the title. I published it on LinkedIn. Uh, this week. It's called How Sponsored Content Could Kill the Media. Yeah. And the whole idea that we were talking about was that so many publishers <clears throat> have become so dependent on revenues from sponsored content and native advertising, which is all the rage today, right? I mean, we know BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I use this in the article that the Atlantic's 75% of the Atlantic's digital revenues are coming from sponsored content and native advertising. So we've seen this shift from, oh, hey, we can't sell buttons digital anymore. What are we going to do? We're going to sell native. So more and more of the inventory on the Atlantic, on BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed's like 100%. On Huffington Post, Huffington Post has more than 100 people that work just on clients' content projects. So I've seen this, and I start out the article by talking, I mean, I used to work at Pent Media, and sponsored content was not even viewed as at all critical to the business. Actually, they called it ancillary. Ancillary means right. separate, right. outside. You know, we were over by the <laughs> boiler room, basically, doing our work. Uh, a little red stapler. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it was. And then now it's all the rage. And the new, it's, it's helped in some resurgences of uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times and, and all this the 31 whatever billion dollar market of native advertising oh here it is so native advertising as an industry this is according to business insider 5 billion in 2013 the number is expected to grow to over 20 billion by 2018 i don't know if those numbers are right but i do know a lot of money is flowing into native right. advertising and sponsored content right now my concern here is that all the eggs are going into the business model basket for publishers around sponsored content and native advertising. And what's this is what's going to happen. So here's my big prediction that we talked about on the episode a couple weeks ago. Brands are starting to get good at this. They're not yet. Right now, it's no... I would say absolutely most media companies create better content, more targeted content, more focused on audiences' needs, they distribute better. They have better audience development. But this is a temporary thing. Brands like Cisco Systems, like Apple, like Microsoft, uh, they will be the, the leading media companies of tomorrow. And that's what we're going to see. At some point, brands are going to say, I don't need to do sponsored content anymore with these media companies. I'm going to just do it all myself. I'm mm -hmm. I've got So 
the New York Times are and are just one of the <clears throat> companies, let's say, are becoming dependent on the sponsored content revenues. And I'm afraid that whenever brands decide to, they're going to pull the rug out from underneath them and the media company is going to get cracked and killed. And I just believe it's a matter of time before that happens. And, of course, in the article, I, I like to throw in, just think about cor- corporations can do this at any time whenever they're ready. And I like this. Apple, for example, can buy the New York Times 100 times over and That's still right. have $30 billion left. Just think about that, folks. That's not yeah. that's not like an outlier. Google, Microsoft, Cisco Systems, they all have corporate coffers that are just bulging right now. And whenever they decide to make the decision. So my whole rant is is just about the publishing industry in general that we become so focused on, oh, here's the new way. Here's the new thing that's going to drive our business models. We don't have to go find a new business model or diversify our business model or our revenue streams in some way. We can just put it all on sponsored content, and that's going to be our savior. And it will be for the next couple of years, and then it's going to kill some of these media companies. So this is my little warning to the publishing industry not to put all your eggs in that basket. It's it's such a great point. I mean, you know, and to your point on the, the whole, you know, how many times Apple could buy the New York Times. People forget how small an industry the media mm-hmm. business really is. You know, it's, of course, high. I think I've mentioned this stat before. It's a stat that just blows me away. Um, and it goes back to even what we were talking about at the very, very top of the show about the two movies we went and saw. But, you know, it's, it's, it, the, the statistic is basically if you take all of the Marvel movies from this year going all the way back to 2010 – and you combine every single one of their revenues, and I'm talking about the combination of Iron Man plus the Avengers plus all of that. You put, combine all of their revenue, every Marvel movie for the last five years, it equals less than one quarter of earnings from Oracle. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that an amazing That statistic? is so amazing. I know. Yeah. And we, yeah. we often forget. I mean, you say we forget. We have no idea <laughs> how big right. these corporations are. Oh, yeah. And when they're, they're making, you know, 40, 60 billion dollars a quarter. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a well, lot. Well, I mean, like and and then what's really interesting is that so we've talked about the Arrow Electronics deal on this show that they purchased right. quite a few assets from Content Marketing Institute's parent company, UBM, in the electronics industry. And you could make the case that Arrow Electronics, a Fortune 250 company now, electronics manufacturer, are, they are, have become the media company for the electronics industry because they purchased it. They purchased their way in. That's right. This is just one little example. <clears throat> this could happen in every market tomorrow. If they just decide to do it, the only thing that's stopping brands from doing this is they're just not thinking about it yeah, in that way. That's exactly so. right. All right. You have, uh, exactly you have right. this old I marketing. I have this old marketing. I have a fun and special oh, this old marketing uh, this week. Um, and so, you know, with, uh, with little fanfare, I would say the Olympics started this week. Um, we talked a little bit last week about how it was my rant last week about how the Olympics has really sort of gone off the deep end when it comes to yeah. um, allowing people to share content or brands specifically to share content. That's not what this is about. This is actually I, when I, I started reading more, I, I went, once I went off on the rant, I started to, I wanted to read a little more about the modern Olympics and its sort of history. And I found some really interesting things, um, including a book um, about, and this is what we'll link to in the show notes is this book because it's, there's not really anything. There's lots online about the guy that I'm going to talk about, but there's not a lot about, um, this sort of, it, it, it combines it in as, as good a way as this book. So don't buy the book or do buy the book. It's three ninety five or something. It's a pretty old book. Um, anyway, the guy's name is Pierre de Coubertin and I, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name. So forgive me, uh, Parisians and, and those in France who, who would, uh, differ with my pronunciation there, but he's considered the father of modern. The modern Olympics, and Coubertin saw the playing fields of. He was a he was a French guy, of course, and and but he saw he was a a teacher um, in in France and visited England quite a bit, and basically through teaching um, his passion for education, he started to really develop this passion for how sports. 
uh, infected education. In other words, those that really were, you know, taking sport seriously would also take education seriously. And he really equated the idea of sports and education to becoming a moral and healthy and, you know, good citizen of the world. And so he started to really get into this and become a historian and a thinker on education. And he, of course, found himself really studying ancient Greece. And he started developing his theory of physical education around the way that the Greek athletes trained uh, during the Athenian idea of gymnasium, which was the training facility, of course, that encouraged both physical and intellectual development. A lot of people don't remember that, but of course, or don't know that, that the gymnasium was actually both physical and intellectual, not just physical. So he saw this idea as this this really cool, interesting way to develop kids and to develop people, which was to really focus on both the intellectual and the physical as as a means of testing. So he decides he wants to resurrect the Olympic Games because the Olympic Games, of course, had been long dead at that point. Um, and he says, hey, I want to resurrect them. So he starts researching it. And he finds that there are some small events that are happening all over the world, one in Greece and one in England and uh, another one in France, I think, um, where these very small little festivals would put together the, the, these things that they call the Olympic Games or the Greek Games in some cases. So he goes to France and he actually goes and does a presentation in front of all these people and creates this um, uh, this presentation where he says, hey, listen, uh, I want to revive the, the Olympic spirit and the Olympic Games. And the audience at the Sorbonne in, in, in Paris says, yay, and gives them a big standing ovation, but then nobody does anything about it. And he can't figure out why nobody wants to do anything about it. But then he discovers that the audience, after he sort of fails in this presentation, he didn't. He made the sort of classic mistake that we marketers make, or that innovators make, where they think basically the same passion I have and the same understanding I have about this topic is what they have. So he didn't educate anybody. He just sort of preached. He just sort of went out there and described this wonderful thing he wanted to do, and everybody said, "Oh, basically, you, you all you want to do is create a little festival, or you want to create an honorary sort of Olympic Games." And he was like, "No, I want to really do the Olympic Games." So he basically rebooted the whole idea and he started a campaign. He started writing about it. He started educating people. And he basically created this entire initiative where he went out to all those organizers of those smaller events and started to pull them in as influencers and had them to start to write about it. And then he educated them in terms of what the real history of the Olympic Games was, what the um, aspects of the real Olympic Games were. And then he started taking that same initiative out to others to, to educate the leaders of the various countries and to educators and to basically the big wigs at the big universities like Princeton. And he basically spent his time traveling around Europe, the U.S. and Greece and France and really educating by creating content and creating speeches um, and pulling these and articles that he would publish in, in, in magazines and, and books and stuff like that about how important the, the Greek games were. And he pulled together this community, this basically this subscribed community, very small community of these local event people who put on these local sports events, uh, educational influencers and leaders. And then what he did was he did this really interesting thing. Once he had these people sort of together and focused in on how wonderful this thing called amateur sports really did, you know, the wonderful things it did for kids and how it affected education, he then invites them to a new Congress, this new event that he puts on at the Sorbonne, where he says, basically, I want to put together this wonderful event where you're all going to attend. We're all going to talk about the wonderful amateur aspects of, of this. And by the way, the last agenda item will be this thing on the Olympics. And then he does something really interesting and maybe a little deceitful in the scheme of things. He, he basically gets everybody, all these world leaders, these educators, these professors, these local event organizers, all to say yes to come to his event and then basically switches up the agenda. And switches up the agenda to where it's not only now it's not about amateur sports, it's all about the Olympics and every agenda item on the on the event for those that two day event was basically about how do we resurrect the Olympics. So he really did this. He, he basically he made the Olympics a thing before they even met. It, was, it wasn't a question of if they were going to resurrect the Olympics. The whole event that they came to was really only a question of how. 
And so through this combination of sort of gritty, consistent education to influencers and content published everywhere he could to educate people as to what the real spirit of the Olympics were, and through his use of the content to pull in these influencers to build this community, he drove an idea that would ultimately become what it is, you know, that we that we see today. And basically the 23rd of June in 1894, the Grand Hall of the Sorbonne, two years after his first presentation, he actually got this group to commit to the first modern Olympic Games in 1896 back in Greece where it all started. And the rest, as they say, is history. Fascinating. That is a fact. Isn't that an interesting fascinating story? story? Even more. He's a fascinating guy, this guy. Even more fascinating that you found that story. Is probably the most fascinating part of that. That's that's well, you know, I just started in on it. I started looking for the 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 uh, after last week. I went and started looking at the how did the whole thing get started anyway? And I found this book, and it's a really short book. And I just sort of you know just poured through it, and it's there. It's it's it tells the story of this uh, Corbaton guy, and, and it's he's just a fascinating dude. <laughs> Well, in uh, just in case uh, we get anybody complaining that we're going longer than normal, we probably should just wrap up. Because <laughs> I know we're going to get somebody yeah. that says, you went five exactly. minutes too long this time. <laughs> Shame on you. All right. Well, we're both heads down yeah. this week working on Content Marketing World, so we'll just sign off with that and say, that's it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. And if you like this episode number 143, we do hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher or all those wonderful podcatchers. When you subscribe, if you subscribe, won't you let us know or leave us a review um, about uh, this old marketing on the on the wonderful iTunes. Tweet us up at the hashtag ThisOldMarketing. We would love to thank you for either a review or for subscribing personally. That's how much we appreciate you as a subscriber. And, of course, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. We love them. Hashtag us up, ThisOldMarketing on Twitter. Or, you know, if you like the email, you can send an email to ThisOldMarketing at ContentInstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes, available in the show as we publish um, on Monday night, and, of course, in the show posts that we post at ThisOldMarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.